Fly ball left field, tagging from third is Suarez. Goodell comes running in. He's under it, makes the catch. Here's the throw to the plate. It's in the air. He is. Welcome back to the Stupid Money Podcast. Uh, took a break, I guess, because I, I, I guess the best way to put it is a lot of people recently have other things to that they care more about than the Phillies' bottom of the barrel offseason move. So I decided to stay out of the way of that. But now that there's a week off, decided to get slip an episode in here quick. So uh, we're just going to go over some quick little notes that happened and then we're gonna kind of talk about the one thing the Phillies still need to do this offseason so last Sunday during the Eagles game the Phillies signed Josh Harrison one year two million uh versatile role bench player I I mean it's not a bad move I guess they needed they needed another uh bench player I, I guess they're gonna go with Guthrie as kind of the outfielder that could play center because Harrison has played some corner the past couple mm-hmm. of years, but I don't think he's played any center. So I, I guess that's kind of the plan there. Yeah. I, I don't really view Harrison as a corner mm-hmm. or a center fielder. I only kind of see him as a corner outfielder. And then just to uh, give the guys in the infields, mostly Turner and he can play third when if Hoskins needs a day off, they can move Bowman to first. Mm-hmm. He could basically take care of every position in the infield as far as giving guys a day off when they need one. So I, I think it's a pretty good get for $2 million. He's older. It's not like he's going to come in and start every day, probably maybe twice a week, depending on knock on wood, no injuries, and how off, how guys are doing, whether they're slumping or whatever. But I, I think it's a good get for – Two million. Yeah, and the price the price is great. Uh gonna be thirty-five this year, but played 119 games for the White Sox last year. Now the White Sox had some problems at second base and some other infield spots, which is probably why he played more than maybe maybe you know you expect at that point in his career. But I mean hit two fifty-six, had an OPS of 687. I mean, it, it wasn't terrible. 19 doubles, seven home runs, two or sorry, 27 RBIs. So, I mean, he is what he is. It's not splashy by any means, but it's a nice quality piece that, you know, if the Phillies, like they did last year, want to keep doing these like shift changes in the ninth inning where they go like strictly defense and you put so set third and maybe I, I think they're sold on stop, but. You know, maybe if he's having some trouble early at second base, they put Harrison in late at games to seal that up too. I could see that. So not bad from that standpoint, I guess. And then what you brought up before we came on was how well he's done with Kevin Long as his hitting coach. Uh, Year and a half with the Nationals, 123 games, 281, or sorry, 291 average with an OPS of 794 and an OPS plus of 118, which is the highest number, you know, highest OPS he's had with any team that he's been with. And he 
He's been with five different teams, and he spent eight years in Pittsburgh, which included two all-star appearances. So he his numbers were even – I know it's a smaller sample size, but his numbers were even better than when he was an all-star. Yeah, and that's not because, like we said, we, we plan on – where we assume the plan is to use him in small sample sizes. So mm-hmm. you, you pick your matchups with them. You don't have to play him every day. You don't have to expose him to like elite, elite level pitching if you don't want to. I I think that the, the Kevin Long connection definitely seems to be there. It's not like he's been with them forever, but over 100 games with the Nationals and Kevin Long, and he has a really good sample size to show for it with good numbers. So I think they're kind of banking on – that to stand consistent as far as approach and him being used to what Kevin Long's tactics are. And I think that just the familiarity there, because we talked about this before we came on, but he was here or mm-hmm. at least he was spring here. training a few years ago before we uh, DFA'd him or didn't have him on the major league roster. So we didn't break like a luxury tax, which seems crazy to think about after the off season, yeah. but as distant times but yeah i think i was pretty happy when i saw the signing that's it seems like that's the last move that they kind of needed if they plan on using guthrie so i think overall they they got all the free agents that they mostly wanted to yeah and i i think the bench is probably set now i think Derek hall is gonna have something to say about it until harper comes back but Pre-Harper, I think you're looking at, obviously, Stubbs as the backup catcher. Mm. Harrison and Sosa are locked in a spot. And then Jake Cave and Guthrie, maybe? They they seem to, like, love Jake Cave. Yeah, so I I think that's what they're going to go with. Now, if they struggle offensively early in the year, is one of Guthrie and or Cave going to get the hook and Hall comes up for the home runs? I know he's very limited defensively you have to play him it's a it's a worse first base than reese hoskins so you pretty much have to put him at dh if you're going to play him which i think they want to stay versatile until harper comes back just yeah definitely. you know especially with castellanos the way he struggled last year they'd probably like to get him off his feet as much as they could so i think they're going to go with the more athletic defensive guys so i you know i i think the bench is pretty much set unless one of Caver Guthrie really struggles in spring training and Hall's hitting a ton of home runs. I I really think that's the only way this gets kind of messed up in any way. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair to say. I mean, Guthrie was on a few of the playoff rosters, and I, I don't think they're afraid to use him defensively. So I, mm-hmm. I think they're comfortable in that aspect. So although I know we kind of – we both agreed that Duvall would have been awesome. I – I think they were comfortable enough with the younger guys or guys that were already in house that they didn't feel the what did Duval sign for like eight million with the yeah, I think it's seven or eight yeah so they felt like they could save the six million that the in between mm-hmm. with Harrison being the last bench guy and just ride with who's already on the roster yeah and you know I, I guess this is me trying to be an optimist but the fact that they didn't go get a Duval or a Jerickson Profar who we discussed earlier who pretty much had a career year last year. Now maybe he's a guy who's probably looking for a multi-year deal and wants to start every day. And that wouldn't be the case here once Harper came back. But you know, the positive side of me is kind of saying, are they quietly getting better 
results on Harper than they're letting on, and they don't feel like they need to make a huge move to replace him. You know, it, it, I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking that, but it, it's a way to look at it. The fact that they didn't make kind of like an urgent, you know, overreaction move in any sense for the outfield. Yeah, I mean, it seems like everybody is under the impression, all the, the conferences or the media clippings that I see, it seems like everybody's kind of operating that he'll be back by the All-Star game at, like, the latest. Mm-hmm. It seems like that July, maybe late June is kind of when they expect to see him come back. So I, I don't think – I think they did the right thing as far as – although. Duval wouldn't have like broken the bank. I don't think they necessarily needed to make that gigantic panic move because it does kind of give them some flexibility to see where you're at come trade deadline. And if yeah. you want to spend a lot more money there by picking up a big contract around that time, it gives you the flexibility. So you're, you have 6 million more then than you would if you sign a bigger name. Yeah. I mean, that, that could also, that also is part of it for sure. Uh, who they pick up at the deadline, I know injuries could happen, but like really going into the year, you think like maybe like a starting pitcher, like if they wanted to go crazy and like the Guardians were having a bad year and Bieber became available or something like that. But it, it is nice to kind of see a roster that as of today doesn't have many holes when Harper is back. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, the the report they gave on him a couple weeks ago was that he could start swinging by the end of March. So I don't I don't know by swinging I don't know what that means like just swinging like hitting off a tee what I, so yeah I don't I don't know what the progress whether it's just like dry swings moving up to like a tee in a month or mm-hmm. just getting like mobility back in your arm because I I know like if they say swing in like late March you're not going to step in and face 95 plus the next week like that's just right. not realistic it'll take at least probably a month and a half two months but i think late june's probably an optimistic guess based on everything that we've heard and what they're giving to the public as far as information yeah i i would say that's that's probably where it's going to be i would i mean i guess best case would kind of be the the middle of june if if things go well i mean i know a lot of people were mad that they kind of waited two weeks after the season to kind of make a diagnosis here and figure out what to do. And two weeks doesn't seem like a lot of time, but like two weeks in baseball is as many as 14 games, which Mm -hmm. in a division as loaded as the NL East is like 14 games means a lot. So I I definitely think, you know, there's some reason I know they had to, you know, go through some things, I guess, but. Yeah. uh, And I looking, looking back on it, like we were mad about two weeks. At least he wasn't like the whole Trevor story, whatever happened there, where he waited until like mm-hmm. January to get it done. Like, yeah. looking back on it, if it was two weeks, then that's not the the worst thing in the world. Yeah, the uh, the Red Sox are in some trouble, but uh, that uh, that is uh, they did sign Devers back, so that dream is a uh, dead too. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess it could be worse, and you know, you just have to hope that guys like like Castellanos, like, you know, it's in there that he could be good. And, uh, you know, I was looking at a lot of people were, were commenting because I saw some things that I agreed with that the Phillies lineup was kind of ranked a little low in these like preseason 
lineup rankings like the cardinals are at two and it's like yeah. it's all based off of war really and the, like to me the cardinals lineup doesn't pass the eye test if it's like, based on war the cardinals just get so much war because of like their defense unless mm-hmm. i haven't like looked at the system i don't know if they're filtering it out so it's only like offensive war that contributes to the lineup rankings but some of that stuff could just definitely be skewed because yeah they they don't pass the eye test for me as far as being better than the Phillies at all. Yeah, so MLB.com's top 10 lineups. I, I meant to pull this up on here. I forgot. But number one, the Astros. Number two, the Padres. Three, the Blue Jays. Four, the Cardinals. Five, the Braves. Six, the Mets. Seven, the Dodgers, which is hilarious to me. That lineup is literally two people. Uh, eight, the yeah. Phillies. Nine, the Yankees. Ten, the Guardians. I, I don't know. They're what – I. I guess there was an article attached to this. I don't know. I just saw the picture. I don't know if they're ranking this with Harper without. Eighth with yeah. Harper seems ridiculous to me. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have two MVP candidates, the best offensive catcher in the in the league, and the NL home run champion. So I I don't know how you and, get eighth. And Castellanos and Hoskins and Boom. Yeah. That's yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I don't really understand the, the Cardinals hype. I, I thought that what the Phillies pitching did to them in that short series in the playoffs made it very clear that they are a very easy lineup to navigate if you get around Goldschmidt mm-hmm. or not. Now, I know they added Contreras, but he's not bad, but he's not like an MVP candidate. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's a step below JT, I'd say. So, yeah, that one's weird to me. The Dodgers... I, it's literally just Betts and Freeman and a bunch yeah, of guys that underachieve like, terribly. They're studs. And like, like Will Smith is like pretty good. I'd say he's in like the Contreras. I'd say he's closer to JT than Contreras is as far as hitting. Yeah. Like that, that dude, that dude can hit. But like, if you put those three up against the Phillies' top three, I'd say that it's close. Probably go lean the Dodgers with just those three. But then the rest of the lineup, I, the depth that the Phillies have, it's I don't even think it's cl- like Gavin Lux is <clears throat> average at best. Yeah, and you'd line him up against Schwarber, I, I guess, in terms of like or Real Muto, like as the number four hitter. The yeah, best. It's yeah, crazy. I don't know that. That was funny. So you know, a lot of people are saying that the bottom half of the Phillies lineup is weak. I think we everyone agrees that Alec Bohm is kind of due for that that breakout year where maybe he has 20 or more home runs. But two guys I was looking at was Stott and Marsh. After the Phillies released De Gregorius in 54 games, Stott hit 279 with an OPS of 735, which once DD was gone, he stopped looking over his shoulder. He played very well. Mm-hmm. With, with Marsh, with the Phillies, 288, an OPS of 773. He just, the Angels don't know what the hell they're doing. I think that's pretty much what it is with Marsh. Um, that's the best way I can put it. So I, I, I think the thought that the Phillies bottom half of the lineup is weak is a little overblown. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited for Kevin Long to have like a full spring training and like full season to work with Brandon Marsh because we saw mm-hmm. little differences from the short time that he was here and he was just improving. Strikeout rate's still really high, but it went down from what it was with the Angels. Like I think he can improve even more in that aspect. So yeah, I'm the first first few months of the season last year, I think 
we were all kind of still feeling out Kevin Long. Like we, mm-hmm. we didn't always agree with what he was doing and all that their approach and stuff and felt like at least I personally felt like it was really inconsistent. Like one day they'd work a bad mm-hmm. pitcher and make his pitch count get high. And then the next day it's like Alcantara and you want to get him deep into a game and you come out and he's at like 50 pitches through six innings. Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like it was really inconsistent, but by the end of the season, especially with like the younger guys, I felt like their approaches just improved like drastically from the start of the season. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty confident and comfortable with him working with guys over the course of a full off season and regular season. Yeah, I think those three, the three young guys, are going to improve, and I mean they're going to need to, especially early in the year without Harper. They and relied upon uh, driving some runs. And, you know, Bum quietly was in the 70s in RBIs last year. I think that kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people. Yeah. And he really, I think his best month was probably that July month when mm-hmm. Harper was out. And he kind of helped steady the ship as far yeah, as... Yeah, he hit three a, a few times. Yeah, he was, mm-hmm. he, he was really crucial as far as keeping the the season afloat in July, right when the initial shock of Harper's injury kind of set yeah. through the team. And I, you sent the, I think you sent me the tweet in the other day about like McNeil's expected batting average last year was like 280 and Bohm's was like 290. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was funny. And it's like the one was the National League batting champ and one was an underachieving young prospect. It's like the shift's gone. I get it. Bohm needs more power. And I definitely agree in that aspect, but like the dude's a pure hitter, like it'll, they'll start to fall. I feel like yeah. every other game, he has somebody make a dive and catch on him. Yeah. I, I was going to say he, he definitely leads the league in like amazing gold glove plays made against. Whereas I felt like for McNeil, like everything had eyes and just yeah. always got through the infield he just or like cue shots that have crazy yeah. spin and Bohm will hit a liner at like, 95 and some guy will just snag it yeah that is yeah it it has felt that way so hopefully that luck starts to change um kind of buried the lead here but the the one thing i did want to talk about was the last thing the phillies really need to do this offseason and you know we talked about we just a couple minutes ago we feel pretty good about the roster heading into the year but they they need to resign aaron nola um gonna be a free agent after the year with zach wheeler up after the 24 season you want to keep Noel around, kind of have a veteran guy there with Painter, Abel, McGarry, a couple of these other guys coming up. You want to have that veteran presence, that in, in-house guy. The last time they did an extension with him, 2018 offseason, they did it in spring training. So maybe it's a thing where they like to sit down in person and go over it. I get that. Maybe it happens again. Uh, like, you know, 2018 was a very crazy offseason for the Phillies with the Real Muto trade, the McCutcheon signing, the Harper saga. Similar, I guess, in a sense, this year, Turner, the monster deal, had to rework the bullpen, gave Walker a ton of money. So mm-hmm. I could kind of see that they wanted to wait till all that stuff was out of the way to get to this. But I, I just feel like this is a guy, I know he, he struggled at times when, you know, in some bigger moments late in the World Series and stuff, but it, it, it feels like this is a guy they, they got to keep around at least for the next four or five years. Yeah, I, I saw a tweet today. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Leo Morgenstern tweeted it out. 
It was a comparison of two guys between their age 29 seasons. So Nola through age 29, 203 games, 1,228 in the third innings pitched, 1,380 strikeouts. He has a 3.6 ERA, a 3.28 FIP, and 29.9 F4. And the guy that he was compared to had 207 games, 1,239 in the third innings pitch, so 11 more innings, uh, 1,321 Ks, so 59 less strikeouts, 3.58 ERA, so about the same, 3.39 FIP, higher FIP, and 26 F4, so three less F4. And that guy was Max Scherzer through his age 29 season. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think the sooner they can get an extension done, the better. I think spring training would be ideal because, I mean, Noah just not not even sneakily like the dude's going to put up another big season because that's just what he does. So I think it's better that they get it done sooner rather than after the season when the price could be even higher. And then you're running the risk of getting in like a bidding war with the Steve Cohens of the world, which I, I think we'd all be pretty pretty upset if he got poached by Cohen. So yeah, I think spring training is definitely a good time to get it done when they could actually talk to his camp in person. Yeah. So his, his deal that he did sign in spring training, 2018, five years, 56.75 million. Uh, that was a deal that like it went up every year. It wasn't like a, an even thing. I know the AAV, it, it counts differently than mm-hmm. what they're actually paid. I get that. But so pretty much like almost 12 a year, like 11 point something a year. So not a lot. I I would assume he's going to ask for at least double that. So you're probably looking at, I think, five years, you know, maybe 120, 130, somewhere in that range. I think, so. it'll, I think it'll probably be similar to what the initial Wheeler contract was, if I mm-hmm. if I had to guess. I think because what now that, that was 5, 120 something, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I think it might have been five for like one twenty on the dot. So yeah, yeah, I think. And I mean, he's he said that he loves Philadelphia, and like I've seen like quotes recently about how he, like over time it was like a city, and now he feels like it's his home. So I think, especially coming off the the season that the organization had, as far as right. winning, attracting fans, like I think he wants to be here, and the the recent events, I think you could definitely get a good deal done for both sides where he's not breaking the bank of the organization, but you're still paying him the homegrown guy exactly what he deserves. Mm-hmm. And he had arguably his best year since that year he finished third in the Cy Young voting this past year. Somehow, mm-hmm. though, was 11 and 13. The, the record was weird, but... It was, three it was point, the Grom type year. Yeah, the 3.25... Uh, ERA was his lowest since the 2.37 in 2018. So, yeah, I mean, kind of coming back, his ERA plus was 125, which was the third highest of his career. So definitely a guy who seems to be trending up as he heads towards age 30. I mean, look, Zach Wheeler trended up at age 32, and the Phillies got the best years out of him. So mm-hmm. kind of hoping the same thing with Nola because it would be nice to kind of have him there when Painter and Abel and McGarry come up. And, you know, 2025, the Phillies can have an entirely homegrown rotation with 
Nola, Suarez, Painter, Abel, and then maybe McGarry or someone else. So I that well, Walker Walker's still here for four years, right? Oh, Walker. Uh, yeah. Okay. So he'll be here. Yeah. At the close end of that. Enough. Yeah. Close. Yeah. He will be there for a year or two. So yeah, he would be. He'd be the five though, I think, on there. So that. Yeah. I yeah. I definitely think so. So that that would be fun. At least four of the five to be homegrown, and you know it's important to kind of keep these guys like the Braves have and, you know, try to get these hometown discount deals. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's important the Phillies start to do that because while it's fun to throw the $300 million contracts at Harper and Turner, it's not sustainable no, for not an entire. And if you want to get in the Machado sweepstakes at the end of this year, which everyone assumes he's going to opt out or the Soto in I think two or three years, then you got to, finding ways to be cheap in other places and you know three of your starters being homegrown guys still on that pre-arb deals is a great way to do that so yeah all right so uh, that's gonna do it for this one i wanted to keep a little short before i lost my voice so uh (laughs) thanks for watching for uh, alex i'm alex we'll see you next time